Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 7, Exodus chapters 7 and 8. Last week, Exodus chapters 5 and 6, began the preparation for the Lord to force Pharaoh to give up those Israelites and allow them to leave. And Moses and Aaron were in Egypt now. And they had just confronted Pharaoh with the mildest demand that was going to be put on him. Let my people go out to the desert for three days. Just three days to worship Jehovah. But we were also told that God had predetermined that Pharaoh's heart would be hard and that he, Jehovah, would himself harden Pharaoh's heart even further and then Pharaoh would harden his own heart even more and then the Lord would further harden Pharaoh's heart to an even greater level and so on and so forth until the plagues that were poured out upon Egypt were so devastating that the Pharaoh would not only let Israel go, he'd demand they go. The Pharaoh reacted to Moses' demands by stopping the shipment of straw, a standard and necessary ingredient for mud bricks that the Israelites counted on to have delivered to them to manufacture the countless millions of mud bricks for the cities and fortresses they were building for Egypt. Rather, they were told that they would now have to go and obtain the straw on their own, but their quota of bricks could not decrease. Now, such a demand was utterly impossible to meet, and Pharaoh, whose irrational and paranoid hatred of these Hebrews was behind this nonsensical demand, orders that the foremen of the Israelites be beaten for not producing as much as before. And the foremen, in turn, go to Pharaoh personally, asking exactly how it is that he thinks they can possibly accomplish what it is he's insisting on. And his answer is, it's not my problem. It's your problem. So the foremen go back to Moses and Aaron, and they blame them for what's happened, causing Moses to question whether A, he's even adequate to do what the Lord has told him to do, and B, whether or not he's going about doing what it is that Jehovah has instructed him to do in the correct way. The Lord's response to Moses is what begins Exodus chapter 7. So let's read Exodus chapter 7 together. Exodus chapter 7. But Adonai said to Moshe, I have put you in the place of God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You are to say everything I order you, and Aaron your brother is to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his land, but I will make him hard-hearted. 
Even though I will increase my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then, when I stretch out my hand over Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them, the Egyptians will know that I am Adonai. Moses and Aaron did exactly what Adonai ordered them to do. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron to take his staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh so that it can become a snake. Moshe and Aharon went in to Pharaoh and did this, as Adonai had ordered, and Aharon threw his staff in front of Pharaoh and, it, and, and his servants, and it turned into a snake. But Pharaoh in turn called for the sages and sorcerers. And they too, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing, making use of their secret arts. Each one threw his staff down and they all turned into snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Nevertheless, Pharaoh was made hard-hearted and he didn't listen to them as Adonai had said would happen. Now Adonai said to Moses, Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. Stand on the riverbank to confront him. Take in your hand the staff, which was turned into a snake, and say to him, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, Let my people go so that they can worship me in the desert. But until now you haven't listened. So Adonai says, This will let you know that I am Adonai, I will take the staff in my hand and strike the water in the river and it will be turned into blood. The fish in the river will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians won't want to drink water from that river. Adonai said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, reach out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, all their reservoirs, so that they can turn into blood. There will be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and in the stone jars. Moses and Aaron did exactly what Adonai had ordered. He raised the staff and in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants struck the water in the river and all the water in the river was turned into blood. The fish in the river died. The river stank so badly that the Egyptians couldn't drink its water. There was blood all throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts so that Pharaoh was made hard-hearted and didn't listen to them as Adonai had said would happen. Pharaoh just turned, went back to his palace without taking any of this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they couldn't drink the river water. Seven days after Adonai had struck the river, Adonai said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, here is what Adonai says. Let my people go so that they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will strike all your territory with frogs. The river will swarm with frogs. They will go up, enter your palace, go into your bedroom, onto your bed. They will enter the houses of your servants and your people and go into your ovens and even your kneading bowls. The frogs will climb all over you your people, and your servants. 
You know, one of the great challenges that we believers have is trying to understand just who Yeshua is and where he fits into the Godhead and how it is that he is a man and yet he is God. And even more, while the Lord pronounces at every turn that he is Echad, one, completely unified, that we have these multiple essences or entities of him, the three chief ones being named Yehoveh, another Yeshua, and the third one that we simply call Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. Now, I, I promise you, if you understand how all this works, then you need to write a book. All right, because you're going to be the first. All right, now that said, nothing helps to understand this amazing mystery more than understanding Moses and Aaron's relationship with each other and with God. There are precisely two mediators in all scripture. Moses and later Jesus the Christ. And generally speaking, the relationship between Jesus and the Lord Most High is patterned after the relationship between Moses and the Lord Most High. The obvious difference, of course, is that Moses wasn't God. Right? But Yeshua was. Therefore, let the impact of the words of Exodus 7 verses 1 and 2 sink in a little bit. Allow me to point out that in the original Hebrew, the words of verses 1 and 2, chapter 7 of Exodus are this. Yehovah said to Moses, See, I place you in the role of Elohim to Pharaoh with your brother Aaron as your Navi. That is, the father places Moses, the mediator, in the role of a divine being with Aaron being the earthly spokesman for the divine. Navi is the typical Hebrew word that we translate as prophet. Don't we see the same pattern with Christ? The Father puts Yeshua in the role of divine God. And there will also be a prophet as a spokesman to pave the way for Yeshua, John the Baptist. God, mediator, prophet. This was Moses' situation. This was our Savior's situation. Now, this was all perfectly understandable to the Pharaoh. I mean, after all, Pharaoh himself was considered divine. And now Moses would be the divine negotiator. Of course, in reality, Pharaoh was no more of a god than was Moses. Right? The difference is that Pharaoh was delusional, while Moses was indeed imbued with the power of God. I mean, can you say mismatch coming up here? So as we move along, pay close attention now to how Moses behaves and what he does and what the Lord expects of him, because it's a shadow of Yeshua's ministry. 
Now, chapter 7 begins the series of plagues that God will use to strike Egypt and eventually result in the king of Egypt letting the Israelites leave. Now, it's important to understand the great cost that it would have been to Pharaoh and to Egypt to allow these Hebrews to immigrate in mass out of Egypt. And Pharaoh was indeed paranoid about that very thing happening. I mean, remember, up to this point, the only demand made on Pharaoh was to let the Hebrews go three days' journey out into the desert to worship God. The implication was that they would return. But Pharaoh didn't trust this. He figured that if he gave his permission, they'd just keep on going and never return. In fact, in later verses, we'll see Pharaoh cave in a couple of times. Right? And then demand that Israel, for instance, leave their flocks behind as surety for their return. Now, at this time of history, Egypt had a population in the 10 to 12 million range. Okay. Israel made up something between 2.5 and, and 3 million of that number, which means that Egypt stood to lose around a quarter of its population and virtually its entire workforce if Israel was to go. I mean, imagine if in the U.S., which now stands at something around 300 million, if we were in a matter of days to suddenly lose 75 million people. And that these people were our construction workers and our factory workers, automobile assemblers, field workers, food preparers, steel makers, electricians, plumbers, heavy equipment operators, cargo handlers, truck drivers. The effects would be devastating. I mean, our entire economy would collapse. Food distribution, construction, automobile repair, our utilities, all the most basic services we take for granted would be interrupted. You know, and unlike that 24-hour power failure not all that long ago up in the Northeast, this event would go on for years, maybe for decades. I mean, the U.S. would overnight become a second-rate power and a bankrupt nation, probably unlikely ever again to retain its former greatness. This is what faced Pharaoh if he released the Hebrews permanently. I mean, is it any wonder that he refused? Yet, what we will see is that the end result was that God crushed Egypt for refusing his instruction and then they were devastated anymore by losing Israel anyway. I mean, it was a double whammy. It, you know, whatever difficulties we might face in obediently submitting to the will of God, no matter how hard it may seem at times, the consequences are going to be less than when in our refusal God moves to enforce his will on our lives. Now, before we get to all the plagues, I'd like to set the stage. First, the Hebrew word typically translated as plague is negah. N-E-G-A, nega. And nega is a generic word indicating being stricken. Right? As in some type of blow 
upon something or someone, usually with the idea that it's a punishment for an offense. Okay? So this strike, this blow, can come in many forms. It could be a sickness. It could be a pestilence. It could be an earthquake. It could be the loss of a loved one to death. It could be the loss of prosperity or health. Okay? It could, of course, be a plague. So calling all ten strokes against Egypt plagues in our more modern sense is a little bit off the course, although a couple of those strokes were most certainly plague-like. Now, properly speaking, there were really only nine strokes or plagues, with the tenth actually being judgment. The first nine were to convince the Pharaoh to avoid the tenth, to avoid the judgment that Jehovah had said would occur if the great king of Egypt wouldn't release Israel. These strokes inflicted upon Egypt were, therefore, actually not ten, but three sets of three, all progressive in nature. Now the first set of three involved the whole land of Egypt and everybody in it. Egyptians, Hebrews, visitors, they were all affected. And they were generally fairly mild in nature. I mean, look at these. You know, Nile turns to blood, frogs, swarms of insects. Okay, it, They were mainly in the area of what I'd call discomfort. Okay. The next two sets of three, that is the next six strokes, were visited only upon the Egyptians. God in this way now divided and separated his people from the others in the land of Egypt. He made a distinction between Israel and everybody else. Now while Pharaoh had been personally informed in his palace by Moses and Aaron that Israel had been set apart for God, the people of Egypt were only going to find this out by experiencing that God made a distinction with Israel. One can only imagine how quickly the news spread even beyond Egypt about these terrible blows suffered by the Egyptian people, including the God-man Pharaoh himself who didn't escape. I mean, but, but, can you imagine when the word got out that for some miraculous reason the Hebrews were unaffected? Now indeed these plagues, these strokes, were of supernatural origin. They were miracles from the power of God. However, in reality what occurred and each of them also occurred in nature from time to time, though not to the extent of what was happening now. It is completely normal, according to Scripture, that God would use ordinary events and circumstances and nature's various elements in an extraordinary way to achieve His purposes. What separated these nine devastations from the same types of occurrences which appeared naturally occasionally 
was that they occurred at Moses' command. Some of them came at an abnormal time of year. Right? They were also greatly more severe than had ever occurred before, and they happened one right after the other. It left no doubt to the Hebrews or the Egyptians that the God of Israel controlled every natural process known to man. Now, we know from the scripture that we read in chapter 7 that the first stroke lasted seven days. We also know that the judgment upon Egypt, usually called the tenth plague, when God killed all of Egypt's firstborn, and that event which marks the Passover, that happened on the night of the 14th of Nisan, late winter, early spring. The seventh plague struck Egypt's uh, agriculture, and the Bible tells us of the certain state of development of those field crops, which gives us a pretty good idea of the season in which it occurred, which is about the end of January, the first of February. Okay. Now, various Bible scholars have used this and some other data to speculate that from the first plague to the final judgment, that tenth, the killing of the firstborns, was about a ten-month period of time. Okay. That is, the this event with Moses going in to Pharaoh, striking the water with the with his staff and turning it to blood, began probably in the May-June time frame and ended the following March-April time frame. Now, some see it as slightly less, maybe eight months, eight and a half months. Either way, we see that this series of blows against Egypt played out over a fairly extended period of time. All right? And that Pharaoh and his advisors had ample time to consider what was happening All right? and what their response should have been. By the way, repentance and compliance should have been their response. And in between each plague... The government and the people likely gained some amount of false hope when the effects of that stroke seemed to start to subside and life at least moved back a little bit towards normal. Yet, what happened was that as each day passed after a calamity, Pharaoh grew hardened and actually less concerned that there might be another one to follow. He just returned to his normal day-to-day activities, addressing his ongoing agenda and affairs of state. I mean, what could be a better picture of our human nature? You know, a few days after 9-11, a great part of our nation filled their pantries with extra food and water. Went down and bought plastic and duct tape. I'm not sure what in the world good that ever would have done, but it felt secure, didn't it? We kept our gas tanks filled. We kept our senses heightened for any sign of something abnormal occurring around us. Our churches overflowed. Volunteerism skyrocketed. Now, barely five years later, our churches are as empty as before and our blood banks run dry. 
For a time, this nation's believers wondered out loud and didn't care who heard us how we might have displeased the Lord and why his hand of protection has been lifted from us. Now we're back to hearing pastors say once again, God doesn't punish his people. It was simply evil doing what evil does. I mean, we're more concerned now with the inconvenience of all that extra security at the airports and office buildings than what might happen if it wasn't there. People haven't changed a whole lot in 3,500 years, huh? Well, one final peculiarity about these nine strokes against Egypt, and we'll move on. The third stroke of each group of three always came unannounced to Pharaoh. That is, the first two calamities would occur, but each time Moses would come in and tell the Pharaoh, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. All right? And he'd explain the nature of it all. Then the third one, a more terrible one, would happen, but Pharaoh would not be forewarned. So plagues one and two, four and five, seven and eight, all occurred with advance notice, three, six, and nine, no prior notice to Pharaoh. Now to Pharaoh and his brain trust, it appeared that Aaron and Moses were responsible for this series of calamities, just as the king's magicians were given credit for their own sorcery. Yet, it was pretty hard to pin plagues 3, 6, and 9 on Moses and Aaron since they weren't even present all right, before Pharaoh to tell him what was about to, hap what was about to happen. So God used the third of each of these series of three to show Pharaoh and his cronies that Jehovah was the author of these things, not his mediator, not his prophet. And that Jehovah, God of Israel, was supreme over all things, everywhere, and that included Egypt. Now, understanding this, helps us as we look back now to that very first verse of chapter 7 where God sends Aaron and Moses back to Pharaoh with another demand and Jehovah says to Moses, I will make you, Moses, as God to Pharaoh. Indeed, this first stroke Moses was about to announce through Aaron would appear to Pharaoh as though it was Moses' own doing. So by Pharaoh's thinking, indeed, Moses was as a god. Okay, to make such supernatural things occur at his command. And by the way, Pharaoh knew full well that he couldn't do any of these things. Now in verse 3, God tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's already rebellious and defiant heart. For the purposes of showing Egypt, he says, my signs and wonders. And that way, he says, Egypt will know that I am Jehovah. So what we see here is that it's not just a matter of convincing Pharaoh. God wanted Egypt, the millions of common people, to be made acutely aware of his power and glory. Now certainly it was going to take Pharaoh's permission for Israel to go, 
But God wanted all the people of Egypt to know who he is. Why? Undoubtedly, so they'd give up their false gods and worship him. I mean, Pharaoh was never going to worship Jehovah. He was only going to be defeated and then comply grudgingly. Pharaoh's heart had long ago passed the point of no return. Now this brings us to a question that's a whole lot less difficult when we're applying it to Pharaoh and a whole lot more difficult when we apply it to ourselves. And it's this. What do we gain from believing that God, Jehovah, exists and is powerful? And what do we gain by complying with God's instructions? Well, Pharaoh most certainly believed. He didn't deny that there was Jehovah, God of the Hebrews. He didn't deny, even before the final plague, that Jehovah was a real God and very powerful. He also, in the end, complied by letting Israel go, knowing it would mean the end of Egypt as a world power for a long time. Does that mean that Pharaoh, because he believed God existed and he complied that he was now righteous before God Almighty? We could pretty easily answer that one, no. But how about you? How about me? What if we believe that God exists and we comply with most of his instructions, are we righteous before God because of that? Depending on which denomination you adhere to, the answer could be different. I mean, we have here in the Exodus story of Pharaoh the frightening and perfectly clear answer to my question. Simply performing whatever act that God has commanded of you legalistic or, let's say, from a fear of punishment, if you don't, doesn't bring righteousness. Believing that God exists and is real doesn't bring righteousness. What are we told? The devil believes he's real and all the demons and they tremble at the thought. I mean, one of the worst words I think ever chosen to explain a righteous relationship with God is the word belief or believe. And how often I've heard an evangelist call unbelievers to belief in God that they might be saved. Well, Pharaoh believed. No, righteousness, righteousness is not acquired by adherence to God's commands nor to the doubtless belief that he is. Righteousness is acquired by trusting God and then Yehovah in turn declaring you to be righteous. That's how it happens. Pharaoh believed, but he didn't trust. What is trust? You know, theologians have argued over the precise definition of that one for centuries. I mean, what all do agree on, though, is that the basis of trust is faith and commitment that God is who he says he is, that he's able to do what he says he will, and that our responses to him come from a type of love that can't even exist within us unless he puts it in there himself.
We can't muster it up. I mean, the principles that we find in the Old Testament are pretty surprising, aren't they? I mean, Genesis 15, Genesis 15 said that Abraham was seen as righteous. Why? Because he trusted in God and so God credited it to him as righteousness. And now we see here an exodus that acknowledging that God exists and legalistically or fearfully or whatever, following his commands doesn't bring righteousness. Okay? Principles, all of these that we typically always kind of thought only came into existence with the New Testament. And here they are so early in the Bible. So these two elderly men, Moses 80, Aaron 83, Aaron and his baby brother trudge back into Pharaoh and do it all over again. And in verse 10, we see the last warning shot fired over Pharaoh's bow before God plays rough. Moses handed Aaron his staff and he gave Pharaoh the sign that the angel of Jehovah had given Moses at the burning bush. Moses' staff became a serpent, a snake. Why a serpent? Because Pharaoh literally wore the serpent on his headdress. All right? The serpent was the Egyptian symbol of kingly authority and of healing in Egypt. Now this was a direct insult, all right, and and it was a questioning of Pharaoh's authority, and though Satan and, and through Satan's power to counterfeit, source, uh, Pharaoh's sorcerers imitated that miracle and they turned their staffs into snakes. But God's power overwhelmed that of the magicians, and Moses' staff swallowed up their snakes. Of course, as predicted, Pharaoh scoffed at the whole thing at this demonstration of divine power and hardened his heart further. So this last warning ignored, the battle begins in earnest. And in verse 15, God instructs Moses to go out to the Nile the following morning and meet Pharaoh out there. Now how Moses knew exactly where to meet Pharaoh has always been the subject of a lot of conjecture. Some believe that there was a regular religious rite that occurred at the same spot every day which Pharaoh was involved. Others believed that it could have been part of Pharaoh's normal morning routine to just go out to the Nile and bathe. All right? In any case, there's no chance he would have been alone. All right? His royal court would have been shuffling along behind him like little ducklings. So Moses pronounces to Pharaoh the coming of the first stroke, the first negah more correctly in this case, Negev. Moses smites the water of the Nile with his shepherd's staff and the Nile turns to blood. Now, not just the great river itself, but all the canals, all the ponds and reservoirs that the Egyptians had built, as well as many branches, cataracts of the Nile. And this miracle happened the full length and breadth of Egypt, affecting everyone. There was no one spared from its effects, not even the Hebrews. 
because they counted on the Nile for water just like everybody else did. Even water that wasn't currently in contact with the Nile, but it had come from it, turned into blood. In their cooking pots, in their storage containers, anything that held water from the Nile turned to blood. Now, interestingly, Egypt's sorcerers were able to imitate this, just as they've been able to counterfeit the turning of snakes, uh, staffs into snakes. Of course, what might have been better is if they could have kind of reversed it, restored the Nile to freshness. But they didn't because they couldn't. See, one would have thought this awesome spectacle of the Nile turning blood red and then the royals receiving reports that it had occurred everywhere in Egypt, you would have thought it might have swayed Pharaoh just a tad. But it didn't. Why? Well, in addition to the hardened condition of Pharaoh's heart, many Bible scholars believe that what occurred here was something that the Egyptians had seen before, but in smaller measure. Every year, at the time of the rise of the Nile, silt would color the water a characteristic red. And the rich nutrients contained in that silt spurred the growth of microorganisms to create an effect that most of us who live near the ocean are pretty familiar with, a red tide. This eats up the necessary oxygen and causes a fish kill, which I can guarantee you, from my house, causes a terrible stench. And this fits very well, not only with the scriptural description of what's occurring here, but also with the God pattern of using nature at his command and in extraordinary ways. Now, was this actually blood? Real blood, as most versions say. Maybe. The Hebrew word used here is dom, D-A-M, which means blood. But dom also means bloody or blood-like, and is even used when referring to wine as the dom of the grape, the blood of the grape. So the word dom can, and often does in the Bible, refer to a color. It doesn't necessitate our assuming that the Nile became literal blood. Now, I'm not dogmatic about all this. All right? Yet when you take this plague in context with all the others, literal blood seems a little out of place as all the other plagues were obvious elements of nature. Except, of course, the tenth, when blood is used in the way we would expect it would be used. Add to that, we're told in verse 24 that everyone had to dig around the Nile for water to drink. In other words, you know, just like when you go to the beach, if you get kind of near the water line and dig a little hole in the sand, the hole just quickly fills right up with water as it seeps in through that moist sand that surrounds it. And just is used in reverse here in Florida and other places where storm water runoff 
is channeled into ponds so that the solids and the pollutants can be filtered out as the water returns to the aquifer, the people of Egypt were able to have the sand filter the red silt and microorganisms out of that tainted water sufficiently that they could drink it. I mean, no amount of filtering would have solved the problem if the water was no longer water but actual blood. Besides, seven days with no drinkable water in Egypt. I've been there. Alright? It's hot. Right? Would have been a death sentence to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And that most certainly was not the aim in this, especially since the Hebrews were subject to it as well. So Yehovah now sends Moses back to the so far unimpressed and unmoved king of Egypt. And in verse 26, Yehovah says to Moses to tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And if he won't do it, then God's going to send a horde of frogs. Now, first off, if you do not have a Bible that reflects the original Hebrew structure, you won't have a verse 26. Instead, this shows up as chapter 8, verse 1. Okay, don't no big deal. It doesn't change anything. But for the sake of everyone who doesn't have the older Hebrew structure in their Bible versions, we're going to stop now and go ahead and read Exodus chapter 8. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. Adonai said to Moshe, say to Aaron, reach out your hand with your staff over the rivers, canals, and ponds and cause frogs to come up unto the land of Egypt. Aaron put out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and they covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same with their secret arts and they brought up frogs unto the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, intercede with Adonai to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let the people go and sacrifice to Adonai. Moses said to Pharaoh, not only that, but you can have the honor of naming the time when I'll pray for you and for your servants and your people. Be rid of those frogs, both yourselves and your homes, and that they stay only at the river. And he answered, tomorrow. Moses said, it will be as you have said, and from this you will learn that Adonai, our God, has no equal. Well, the frogs will leave you and your homes, also your servants and your people. They'll stay at the river only. Well, Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's presence and Moshe cried out to Adonai about the frogs he brought on Pharaoh. And Adonai did as Moshe had asked. The frogs died in the houses, courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them in heaps till the whole land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that he had been given some relief, he made himself hard-hearted. And he wouldn't listen to them just as Adonai had said would happen. And Adonai said to Moshe, say to Aaron, reach out with your staff and strike the dust on the ground. It will become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. They did it. Aaron reached out his hand with his staff and struck the dust on the ground and there were lice on people and animals. All the dust on the ground became lice throughout the whole land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to produce lice, but they couldn't. There were lice on people and animals. 
Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh was made hard-hearted so that he wouldn't listen to them, just as Adonai had said would happen. So Adonai said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh when he goes out to the water and say to him, Here is what Adonai says, Let my people go so that they can worship me. Otherwise, if you won't let my people go, I'll send swarms of insects on you, your servants, and your people into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of insects, and likewise the ground they stand on. But I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarm of insects will be there, so that you can realize that I am Adonai right here in the land. Yes, I'll distinguish between my people and your people. And this sign will happen by tomorrow. Adonai did it. Terrible swarms of insects went into Pharaoh's palace and into all his servants' houses. The insects ruined the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. And Moses replied, It would be inappropriate for us to do that. Because the animal we sacrifice to, to Adonai, our God, is an abomination to the Egyptians. Won't the Egyptians stone us to death if before their very eyes we sacrifice what they consider an abomination? No, we'll go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to Adonai, our God, just as he ordered us to do. Pharaoh said, I will let you go so that you can sacrifice to Adonai, your God, in the desert. Only, you're not to go very far away. And by the way, intercede on my behalf. And Moses said, all right, I'm going to go away from you and I will intercede with Adonai. So that tomorrow the swarms of insects will leave Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Just make sure that Pharaoh stops playing games with the people by preventing them from going and sacrificing to Adonai. Moses left Pharaoh and interceded with Adonai, and Adonai did what Moshe had asked. He removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Not one remained. But this time, too, Pharaoh made himself stubborn, and he wouldn't let the people go. Why frogs? Well, a frog was the animal symbol of fertility in Egypt. And Heket was the frog fertility goddess. So here we have a further assault on Egyptian false religion. But this inundation of frogs is also a naturally occurring event along the Nile, only in a lot smaller numbers than we have here. This typically occurs along the Nile in the October-November time frame, so we might have a sort of mile marker. Maybe not, but maybe, to watch the progression of the strokes upon Egypt that had begun in the summer, and now the latest one was probably occurring as we near the fall. Now the supernatural nature of this happening was, again, that Moses directed it, and that the number of frogs was enormously beyond imagination. And rather than simply hanging around on the banks of the Nile for a short time, near the puddles of waters they usually did, these frogs wound up in people's homes, in their bedrooms, even in the bread ovens. Now typically when these frogs emerged from the mud, 
they became a feast all right, for the ibis that inhabited the shores of the Great River. You know, it's not unlike in Africa when after the rainy season summer comes, water holes dry up, right, and millions of birds feast on fish that have been trapped in the ever-shrinking ponds. They have, they're overcrowded. I mean, it's just literally shooting fish in a barrel. Right? These Nile frogs are a very unique variety of frog. They're very small, and they can barely leap or hop at all. Right? They're also known for generating the most obnoxious, never-ending croaking you've ever heard in your life. Okay? Now, thankfully, they have a very short life cycle living just long enough as they emerge from the river to lay eggs for the next generation. Life cycle of maybe three to four weeks. Right? And they always stay in the moist sands of the Nile. So one of the miraculous elements of this frog infestation was that they found their way into the driest of places. Even the bread ovens. I mean, a place where they'd never been found before. Actually, the fact that they flooded the dry landscape that began just yards beyond the Nile's banks was also unheard of. So once again, Pharaoh summons his sorcerers and they imitate what Moses and Aaron have done. I, I guess it was important for Pharaoh to try to downplay anything he could in the way that Moses and his God seemed to have accomplished because it certainly was irrational to the max for them to literally try to add more frogs to this thing just to show Moses they could do it. Well, as in the first plague, the Nile waters becoming blood red and undrinkable, Pharaoh's magicians indeed could imitate to a degree what Moses commanded, but they couldn't overturn it. You know, let us learn from this an important attribute of Satan, who is the source of all power that's not from God. What we're commonly aware of is that Satan, to a degree, can counterfeit. He can supernaturally mimic occurrences brought about by God. This is all attested to throughout Scripture, and it's demonstrated for us here in Exodus. But what Satan cannot do is undo what God has determined. Satan cannot defeat acts of God. Some elements of the plagues, the strokes, were mimicked, but they could, they could never stop them, they could never reverse them. This is a truth that we can be pretty thankful for and comforted by. We should remember it as we find ourselves dealing with matters from time to time that seem to have demonic source. Okay. And as you read in times prophecies about the coming Antichrist, that beast filled with Satan's power, notice he can never stop, he can never reverse, he can never undo what God has done. Okay. God has only allowed Satan enough power to mimic. And that only to a point that really but serves to bring about Jehovah's plan in the first place. Well, the frogs apparently really got to Pharaoh. Because here in only the second 
of what was going to prove to be nine strokes, Pharaoh tells Moses to plead with Yahweh, Yehovah, to call off the attack of the frogs. All right, and in return, he will let Israel go into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. And is it if to underscore God's power, Moses asks Pharaoh exactly when he'd like those frogs to disappear. Talk about rubbing it in. But there was a very important point to all this. The act of Moses letting Pharaoh determine the time and place for the frog removal activities, something that neither the Pharaoh nor his magicians could do, served to emphasize the God of the Hebrews' enormous sway and power. Moses says, okay, it'll be as you say, and he proceeds to go to God with Pharaoh's request. Now, just a little note here. While Moses was most certainly right to immediately proceed to God, Moses already had the authority to call off the frogs. Remember, Jehovah told Moses, you will be his God. If Moses spoke it, it would be as if God spoke it. And Moses had agreed to Pharaoh's request that it be tomorrow that the frogs were removed. So it was a done deal right there at that moment. Nothing further was required. Well, the next day, as Moses promised Pharaoh, the frogs suddenly died. And the people had little choice but to gather up the millions upon millions of those little frog carcasses and put them in piles in order to get them out of their houses, their pathways, get them out of their cooking utensils. And what a stench went up all over Egypt that these tiny little croakers decayed. I mean, the Pharaoh, as he would do a number of times, of course, changes his mind, and he won't release Israel to go worship God, or as our Bibles correctly say, hardened his heart. Now notice that opposed to it being God who hardened Pharaoh this time, it was Pharaoh who hardened his own heart. Now a little footnote and we'll come to a close. Associated with Pharaoh changing his mind, there's some humor that our English Bibles tend to mask. Right? So we don't get to enjoy it. In verse 11, if your Bible had the extended chapter 7, or in the more traditional Bibles, verse 15, it says that when Pharaoh saw there was relief from the frogs, he hardened his heart. Well, the Hebrew word that is being translated as relief is, or respite is revacha, R-E-V-A-C-H-A, revacha, and it literally means breathing room. So here we're told that the whole land stunk from the piles of dead frogs. But when the Pharaoh finally got some breathing room, when the stench died down, he changed his mind. Right? In the Hebrew original, it was intended that the words stench versus breathing room were to play off one another. Kind of cute, huh? Okay, this will be a good place to end our lesson this week. We'll get into some more of the... Some more of the uh, plagues next week.